exercise it. The interesting thing about the straight arrow is that it's actually a word that was given over Isaac with the Bible verse, and he has it on the wall in his, uh, in his bedroom. So, so today, um, uh, I've got quite a few things that I want to say. By the way, it's lovely to have Haley and Ozzy with us back there, visiting from Levin. So, Haley, God bless you. Uh, Simon is back with his holiday all over him. He had a week in Melbourne. And um, Bella, do you want to just stand up and introduce every person around you there? This is, this is Bella. I've known Bella since she was one, so I can pick on her because I, I get like the uncle slash dodgy grandpa status. Can you stand up? You've got to stand up, young lady, and introduce everyone around you there. Excellent. Lovely to have you guys here. They're from, they're from, from Lower Hutt, and so they're, they're having a beautiful summer visit to, uh, to Rotorua and uh, planning to go out and do some sunbathing at the Mount this afternoon. So, hey, just before I get to this, um, I, I just want to tell you something I, I've been experiencing. So, because um, one of them happened during the worship time. In, so, in the 90s, there was a revival that swept through New Zealand, and it was like the, the, the average level of the anointing had been here, and suddenly it was there, and it just seemed to be there all the time. And I was talking to Peter Robertson this week, and we were talking about how there were times where you could pray for someone and just put your hand on the shoulder of someone on the end of a row, and everyone in the row would go crashing to the floor. And it was like the anointing was just like that almost all the time. And uh, there, are, there are people that are saying there's revival. Revival has broken out in New Zealand now. I don't believe that is true. I don't because it's not like that. You know, it's not like that. But what is happening that I'm noticing is there are these surges. And so, like, I was just minding my own business there during the worship, and there was this surge of anointing. That's why I wound up sitting down, because, okay, my legs are not working. I was in a prayer meeting uh, a couple of three weeks ago, and while we were praying just down the church house, I had my hands out like this, and suddenly there was a weight in my hands, like I had a shot put in each hand. And I was like, whoa. And so, you know, went charging around and prayed for people. Uh, I was in uh, Mapua. Everyone say Mapua. Mapua is a little uh, little townlet outside of Nelson. Actually, when we were little, uh, Isaac used to call it what? When no no when no not when I was little. When Isaac was little and we lived there, you know, we would say Mapua, and we used to love to go to Mapua because there was an aquarium there. And funny, when he was talking about it to me, he would call it Yopua. And if he was talking to a third person, he would call it, call it Daddy's Poor. So just, a, just an interesting little uh, twist along the way. So I was, in, I was in, yeah, these things are important. I was in Mapua last Sunday night with a group of young people. Uh, so I'd been with a large group on Friday night, and then I was with a much smaller group in Mapua on Sunday night. And we were there for a worship night. And at the end, they asked me to come and share a little bit. And as I came to just share, you know, just a little bit of a testimony, um, I had two words of knowledge. So I had a, a very, a, two simple words of knowledge. One was for this quite a, a, a little fella. He was, he was 12, but he hadn't had a growth spurt yet. And he had this big mop of hair, a little bit like Ross, only even more, sort of, you know, like wild and free. And I put my hand on his head with this word of knowledge, and I felt 
another one of those surges. Like it nearly took me out. It certainly made a mess of him. And then uh, I called on this other young lady, and her name was Annabelle. And I just had a simple word for her. And I put my hand on her head. And again, there was one of these surges that totally wiped her out and several of her friends. And I've been asking the Lord, what are these surges? And I don't, I don't really know other than they're good and they're from God. And I, th- I think God's wetting our appetite. And I think it's important that we don't start announcing. Like if we start saying, we're in revival now, then we consider revival is here at this level. And that's not it. Where we're going is much more. And so I think the surges, I think for me, they're just becoming more uh, common. And I think that they are to whet our appetite and draw us more. So, um, so something's up with that. All right, you, uh, you, so you ready to go? Got your Bibles? Okay, we're going to zip around all over the place. I've got a few loose ends I want to tie up from previous messages, and I'm going to try and tie it all together. But if it does seem a little bit like you went to the buffet and, you know, sometimes you go to the buffet and you pick things and you put them on your plate and you realize they don't quite go together. So if it feels like that, don't worry. Um, How many of you remember a message I did a while ago on Matthew 21 about Jesus turning over the tables? Remember that? So Matthew 21 verse 12, Jesus went into the temple and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned, notice this, the tables of the money changers and the seat of those who sold doves. Okay? So specifically, he overturned the table of who? Money changers and the dove sellers. Okay? Now look at this. Talking about the same episode uh, in, the, in, in John 2.14, it says, He found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers. So there were people selling, because all of these things were used in the temple sacrifices. So you notice this? There were people selling what? Oxen, sheep, and doves, and money changers. But in Matthew 21, he only targeted the money changers and the dove sellers. There was a lot going on in the temple. Would you agree? Okay, you think about it. There's a lot going on in the temple. It would have been beautiful and messy and glorious and chaotic. And there would have been traditions and there would have been the sound of, you know, maybe the animals weren't necessarily losing their life quietly. You know, there might have been mooing and barring and, you know, birds flapping around and goodness gracious knows what else. No, I don't want to join the hot spot. Why did he target these two things? This dropped into my mind when I was listening to a podcast the other day. Leviticus 5 verse 7 says this. So when they're bringing the offerings, anyone who can't afford a lamb. So if, if a family was wanting to bring an offering and they couldn't afford a lamb, they were to bring two doves. So what this means is that the doves, or some places it calls them turtle doves, they were the offering of the lowest of the low in terms of the socioeconomic ladder in the society. So the doves were the offering given by the poorest of the poor. Why did Jesus target the money changers and the dove selling? Remember I talked to you about the double extortion of the money changers converting the currency? 
And then the doves, they were selling the doves that were to be used in worship. The doves was disproportionately affecting who? The poor. If you were rich, you weren't, it wasn't about the doves. You were, bringing a, you were bringing an oxen or you were bringing a lamb, but the doves was affecting the poor. So this double extortion of the money changers and the dove sellers disproportionately affected the poor, and Jesus found this intolerable. You know why I believe? I believe it's because no one should be excluded from the things of God or the kingdom of God based on financial resources. No one should be excluded based on financial resources. Look at Isaiah 55 verse 1. Come all who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come. Buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Come and buy without cost. So he's saying, I reckon the reason he targeted those two things, just my opinion, is because it was absolutely intolerable to him that a, that a burden should be put on anybody, but particularly that people should be excluded based on their financial resources. All right? Well, let's move on to another nice, calm pastoral verse, shall we? You're looking at me suspiciously. You doing all right? I asked the Lord, I said, Lord, let the fire of your anointing be on the preaching of your word today. <clears throat> Galatians 3. This is a nice little pastoral instruction to the Galatian church. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Or another version says, after beginning with the Holy Spirit, are you now trying to achieve your goal by human effort? Bewitched. That's a pretty strong word to use, isn't it? Yes? Bewitched is a strong word. And what is he talking about? He's talking about this. After beginning with the power of the Holy Spirit, now they were relying on their own effort. After beginning with the Spirit, they're now relying on the flesh. And Paul states this. Number one, he states it to be foolish. You foolish Galatians. And then he says, you're bewitched. Holy smokes. Can you see how strong that is? Like imagine, imagine if, if you didn't have the book of Galatians. Imagine if you were one of the Galatians and that turns up from Paul. You, you get a letter from Paul, it comes in the mail with a seal on it, and you probably think, oh, great, it'll be great to hear from our spiritual dad. You're foolish and you're bewitched. Yow. Okay? Now, this is, this is where I want to, so bewitched is a strong word to use. And, and one of the definitions of witchcraft is just a, a counterfeit source of spiritual power. So a source of spiritual power that's not the Holy Spirit, that's a definition of witchcraft. I want to say something reasonably firm and probably a little bit controversial, uh, maybe not to you, but to, might, might be to some. But I believe in our day, much of the church has been bewitched. And I believe it's been bewitched by prestige, by wealth, and by fame. 
I want to give you some examples, and this is going to sound like I'm being specific in my criticism, and I, I'm, I am not, but I just need to say this. Most of our Christian schools have become very expensive. They didn't start that way, but they become very expensive, and they become even, like, as it were, elite organizations. They become the domain of the wealthy. Remember that in the context of what I just said before. Many of our leaders in the church, am I doing okay so far? Just keep going. Just checking. Okay. Many of our leaders in the church have become quite wealthy and quite famous and are uh, like social media influencers. I'm not saying they shouldn't use social media, but I'm saying something has bewitched us. Where, where people that were actually called by the Lord to serve the church become like famous superheroes in the church. And I don't think that was the way it was supposed to be. A lot of our preaching is reduced to like self-help TED Talks, cliches, empty sentimentality, and Bible verses radically taken out of context. <laughs> mm. With a view to filling the church with more and more people so that those at the top wind up more and more famous. Listen, Paul wrote this. He says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. He didn't say money is evil. I told you back in the day eh, about, I had my, my two best mates. And, uh, you know, some of you have read the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Well, I had rich friend, poor friend. One of, my, one of my best mates, so I had two, my two best mates at high school, one of them uh, became very wealthy and was probably well beyond a millionaire before he turned 30. The other one uh, went to work in, a, in a, a, a Christian political party back in those days as a volunteer, and he was the opposite of very wealthy. So I had rich friend and poor friend. Rich friend never talked about money, but he was really generous. He'd take me out in his boat. That's probably where I got addicted to boats. He'd never let me pay for gas. He'd bring lunch. Poor friend was always talking about how disgusted he was by rich friend's money. He was just always going on about money. And the issue was not the money. It was the love of money. I'm going to suggest this to you. There are some antidotes to the love of money. Tithing. Oh, no, not tithing. You can't say tithing. Tithing. If you really understood tithing, and if you really understood that it's not just an Old Testament relic, but a New Testament reality that comes with a blessing, you, you wouldn't get all, all snippety with someone like me standing up and saying tithing. I believe the first tenth of everything that I earn does not belong to me. It belongs to the Lord. And I believe that when I give that, that it opens up the windows of heaven over my life. I can honestly say to you that our finances for the nearly 32 years that we've been married make no sense other than God has blessed us. We've always felt like we've lived beyond our means, but we have accrued no debt. It doesn't make sense. Tithing, offerings. Oh, offerings are such a good antidote to the love of money because you're giving away money. You're saying, actually, I love what I'm giving this money to more than I love the money. It's a good thing to do. And again, like, like it, just, it just happened again. You know, we were just conferring about the missions offering. And I, she said, what's your number? And hers was double mine. So we gave that. 
It's a good thing. It's a good thing. And on top of that, generosity. And I think this is particularly important right now because, boy, oh, boy, we need to be embracing. I don't even really like the term, but I hope you'll understand me. We need to be embracing kingdom economics because the economics of the world is coming apart at the seams. And so we have to embrace kingdom economics. And I would suggest to you that the pillars or the foundational pillars of kingdom economics, in my point of view, is tithes, offerings, and generosity. I remember being with Peter Robertson in Dunedin once. In every shop we walked past, he said, do you want that? And I was like, no, thanks. Do you want that? And I said, what are you doing in there? Like, we went for lunch. He says, we went to get a coffee. And he says, you want a muffin? Can I get you a scroll? What do you want? And I was like, what are you doing? And he says, he says I'm trying to give my way out of lack. They were in a financial pickle, and so he was trying to find opportunities to give away, and I just happened to be with him at the time. So I had a very nice muffin. <laughs> so um, uh, I, here's something else that I'll say that you may not agree with. If I put my tithe into the missions offering, I still owe my tithe. Because your tithe belongs in the storehouse, the place that you go for spiritual resource. So your tithe belongs, like, you know, so like, like, like uh, we got convicted about this many years ago. Like our tithe couldn't be supporting like a World Vision child back in the day. God said, no, your tithe has to go in the storehouse. You go, oh, who, who are you to say that the church is the storehouse? I'm not saying the church is the storehouse. I'm saying wherever you go for spiritual resource, I believe that's where your tithe belongs. All right? So the fruit of that root, you know, the, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. The fruit of that root has grown up and strangled much of the Western church, and we see it. How many times have we seen uh, financial improprieties in, in, in the church, or moral failures, or leaders and people just, just being burned out all the time in this, quote, model of church that we've got? And there's all manner of abuse. And look, Luke 3.9 is not specifically speaking about this, but I think it, it applies. Talking about, talking about the Son of God, the axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And so we're in a time where it's really good for us to be going, boy, I just, we walk a narrow pathway, and I want to get this stuff right, all right? I want to get this stuff right. And I really do believe that you're better off with 90% of your income with the blessing of God on it than 100% of your income potentially without that. My view is this. When it comes to the church, we have a fireplace, but where is the fire? We have an outward form, but where is the power? We have pulpits, but where is the courageous, fire-breathing, heart-igniting, booming declaration of the eternal Word of God in all its powerful, politically incorrect truth and life and hope? You got very quiet. I got to the point where I hated taking offerings because people get so mad with you. People just get so, I remember people just getting so mad with me about offerings. All right, let's look at this. So remember we're talking about this, this, this financial restriction, you know, where, where um, Jesus particularly targeted the, 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 the offerings that the poor would be bringing. Think about this, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29, 
Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Who does that apply to in the room? Anybody, anybody relate to that? Not many were influential. Does that apply to anybody? It's just me and Rob so far. Yours is the only hand going up. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things. How many is that? Who's who's, who's that? Foolish things. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one can boast before him. Think about what I just read. This has always been the king's way. The king's way is this. The eternal, glorious, everlasting king born in a dirty, stinky stable out the back of an inn in Bethlehem. He didn't arrive at the super-duper five-star whoop-de-doopy with all its... That's a pretty interesting description, isn't it? Think about who he chose. He chose fishermen. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. He chose tax collectors to be apostles. He, he turned an adulterous woman at the well into this crazy evangelist. He said this. Remember when the, remember when the disciples were all, you know, they were concerned that the kids were cr- all crawling all over Jesus? Remember that? And he says, let them come. Let them come and don't hinder them. Don't restrict them in any way. I think the disciples were probably worried about messianic decorum. Maybe one of those kiddies had, you know, like children, children often have, you know, they often have the, the snotsicles. And maybe they were like, oh, you know, they're going to get boogers on the Son of God. And he says, I don't care about the boogers, just let them come. Or, you know, even more contemporary, you think about the coal miner, Evan Roberts, who became the spark plug for the Welsh Revival. Or simultaneously, the one-eyed black man called Seymour, I think that's amazing, who became the catalyst for the Azusa Street. Or what about the shy, illiterate plumber in Britain with the name Wigglesworth, who wound up traveling all over the world, including New Zealand and Australia, as this rampaging apostolic man. This is the way of the upside-down kingdom. It's why the tables of the doves and the money changers had to be turned over. Because in this upside-down kingdom, which is actually the right side up, the disqualified get qualified. The fearful become courageous. The hurt become the healers. The broken become restorers. The shamed are given dignity. And those bound are set free. The church was never designed to be a who's who at the zoo. Hello? The church was never designed to be the who's who at the zoo. Humility and prayer are the antidote to this poisonous bewitching that has taken place. Humility and prayer are the antidote to this poisonous bewitching. Okay. How'd you go with that so far? Should I do the second half? (laughs) All right. 
So back to Mapua. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> back to Mapua. So I got there at six o'clock, and the young people were having a barbecue with dodgy mystery meat sausages, and they were playing basketball. And so I went and had a mystery meat sausage. And then I went to sit in the sanctuary beforehand just to wait on the Lord. I always like to do that. And I was sitting in the sanctuary preparing myself to speak to them, waiting on the Lord and listening for his voice. And while I was sitting there, a 17-year-old girl actually called Bella. She walked up to me in the, in the auditorium and she sat down. And I reckon you can always tell, I reckon you can always tell how much intentionality there is by where the person sits. You know, like if you're sitting there and they sit a couple of chairs away, it's more like, hey, how are we? When they, she came and she sat right there, like she was in the seat right beside me. I was like, well, hello. <laughs> and uh, she'd been there on Friday at the bigger youth thing where I'd been talking about the last great revival. There is one more to come. Matthew 24, 14, there's one more to come. So she asked me about that, and then she started asking me about the end times and the return of Jesus, which I hadn't talked about so much. And it made me think of this, Matthew 24, verse 3, not saying that I am Jesus in any way, shape, or form, but it reminded me of this, Matthew 24, 3, now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us. When will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And that's basically exactly what this girl did. She came and she sat down and she says, What are the signs of the end of the age, and when will Jesus come? And so we started talking about that. And we sat there probably for about 20 minutes talking about the return of Jesus, talking about the things both positive and negative that will take place on the earth. And then this is what she said to me. She, she, after we, like I'd been talking for a while, she stopped and she just looked at me and she says, man, I wish we talked more about this. We don't hear anything about this in church. And here's a 17-year-old girl from a Christian family and she's saying, I wish we talked more about this. So, open your Bibles to Matthew 24. I reiterate to you what I said two weeks ago. We need to be heading for the parts of the Bible that the pop culture church is avoiding like a plague. We need to head straight for those parts of the Bible. The book of Revelation, the second half of the book of Daniel. By the way, read Daniel 7 through 12 and then go straight to Revelation chapter 1. I think it's basically the same book. God said to Daniel at the end, he says, seal up these words. But the book of Revelation concludes with don't seal up these words. It's the same book. And then we also should, I reckon, hang out a lot. Matthew 22 through 25. So let's look at Matthew 24, 4 through 14. I told you that when Tasha and I and Courtney and Josiah and Isaac, we didn't have Isaac at that point. When we moved to Lower Hutt, the Lord said to me, I want you to teach eschatology to young people. I said, why? He says, by nature of their age, they're going to see more of what will unfold. 
Matthew 24, 4. And Jesus answered them and said to them, remember their question in verse 3 that I just read to you? Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. You can read that two ways. Many will come saying of themselves, I am the Christ and will deceive some. But I think it's more likely this means many will come with wrong motives and wrong theology, and they will say, yes, Jesus is the Christ, but they will still deceive many. And you will hear, tell me if any of this sounds familiar, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Does that sound familiar? See to it that you absolutely panic. Run away to the hills with guns and bombs and baked beans and pray to be raptured out of it as soon as possible. That's not what it says. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, see that you are not troubled. For these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For, so following on, nation, ethnic group, will rise against ethnic group. And kingdom, speaking of governments, government against government. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. Have you heard what's happening in Iceland? Several thousand earthquakes, people being evacuated. All of these are the beginning of sorrows or birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation. Tribulation means pressure. And kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because, so think about what I just laid out there. That's a bit of a mess, isn't it? Doesn't that just sound like a hot mess? Hmm? Or have you zoned out because it, it, it gets a bit freaky? It sounds like a hot mess, and it says this, And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many, or some versions say most, will grow cold. That's people who had love. But the one who endures to the end shall be saved. The message of endurance is vitally important. And this gospel, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end shall come. So, like I said, this is a challenging passage that is avoided by most. Would you agree? Would you agree it's probably not hugely common that that is being preached about in churches today? I hope so. And Jesus says, of all that written there, all these things are the beginning of the sorrows or the birth pains. So notice, I've talked to you about this before, the love of many or most is growing cold. Why? Because they're disoriented. They're looking at the world and going, hey, this is not what we were told. We thought it was just going to get better and better and better, and I was going to be more and more blessed. And, and if I gave $100, I was going to get 1000 And, you know, I was told this stuff. You know, and I can say that stuff jokingly, but that happens. So they're looking at the world and going, I was told that it was going to get better and better and better, and I was going to be more and more comfortable, and it was just going to be best, better and better, and more better, better, better. And now the opposite is happening, and I'm getting disoriented, and I lack any biblical understanding. Why? Because no one told me. 
But on the same side, at the same time, against that backdrop, you've got verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom. This gospel, which gospel? This gospel of the kingdom, this gospel that he has been preaching, this truth that he has been telling, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the earth as a testimony to every ethnic group. And then the end shall come. And I told you the word end there is goal. It's not the end. Oh, the end is coming. The end is nigh, brothers. No, the goal is coming. What is the goal? The goal is Jesus splitting the sky and returning to the earth as King of kings and Lord of lords and the dirty, stinking devil wrapped in a chain just by an angel. Jesus doesn't even have to do it. Just an angel is enough to bury him for a thousand years. Hallelujah. One angel. It doesn't even say archangel, just an angel. God looks around. Who wants to do it? Maybe one of them just puts his hand up. It's probably appointed, but maybe one puts his hand up. Just a little one says, I'll do it. I'll take out the trash. That's possibly a little bit edgy, isn't it? So in this context, you've got a worldwide declaration of the kingdom of God. This gospel, this gospel will be preached in all the world. The gospel he's just been declaring. It's a gospel that does not hide the fact that the end times will be marked by worldwide chaos and catastrophe. At the same time, a worldwide declaration of this gospel. Immense contrast. Remember, the light shines in the darkness. Remember, it's the great and terrible day of the Lord. A great worldwide awakening in the midst of deep darkness and chaos. Now, I just want you to keep that in mind, and I want you to think for a moment about the seals, trumpets, and bowls in the book of Revelation. Remember I talked to you about that? Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. The seals, conflict, scarcity, death, the cry of the martyrs, cosmic disturbances, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. That sounds peaceful, doesn't it? Then the trumpets. A third of the vegetation struck down. A third of the ocean struck and turned to blood. A third of the fresh water struck and turned bitter. A third of the sun, moon, and the stars struck and not giving their light. Locusts devouring crops and four angels released to kill. Holy smokes. Holy smokes? Possibly, anyway, holy smokes. Now notice this. Then, right in the midst of this unimaginable turmoil, think in your mind what I just said to you about verse 14 of Matthew 24 happening in the midst of turmoil. Then right in the midst of this unimaginable turmoil, there is the seventh trumpet. So we got to six trumpets. The seventh trumpet is this. Then the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So you've got chaos and turmoil, and then suddenly, right in the midst of it, it's like this. It's like, it's ours. 
It belongs to Jesus. It's done. It's finished. You know what I think that is? This is just, just me subjectively. I reckon that is the conclusion of the Matthew 24, 14 worldwide revival. When it's done, the angels sounds his trumpet and they go, the kingdoms of this world have now become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. It is done. He owns the nations. All right. How'd you go with that bit? Okay. Last thing. Yes, it is the last thing. Revelation 22, 17 to 21. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let them come and take the water of life freely. And then it goes on, it finishes like this. This is the end. This is the end of the book of Revelation. Surely I am coming quickly. That's Jesus saying that. And then look at the response. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. All right? Now, I, wanna, I just want to, because I talked to you about this two weeks ago. The Spirit and the Bride say come. And I only interpreted it for you this way. It's the church fully aware of what is ahead. The Spirit and the Bride saying, Lord Jesus, come. It's the Maranatha cry. It's not come and fill this meeting. We want to have a good meeting. It's come, return. Let your feet touch down on the Mount of Olives. Split it east and west. Go in through the east gate that's been blocked up for over a thousand years. Bust in through the gate beautiful. Interesting, isn't it? That often I think that the, the various other faiths tend to believe that Jesus is coming more than the Christians do. They took the time to brick up the east gate, the beautiful gate, and they put a, a bunch of graves outside of it to stop him coming. They paid more attention to the return of Jesus than the church does. Do you really think that Jesus is going to come and go, oh no. (laughs) What are we going to do now? How many of you know that that that, that grave is not going to be a problem and that, that that bricking up is not going to be a problem? The Son of God is not going to stop there and go, oh dear, what's plan B? Shall we go through the dung gate? Because there's a dung gate. There is no problem there. And I said to you, this is the spirit and the bride saying, Lord Jesus, come in an ultimate way. But notice this. It also says, it says, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him come and take the water of life freely. I believe there's two things here. I believe you can say it is the Spirit and the Bride saying, Lord Jesus, come. I really do believe that. I believe that because it goes on and he says, I am coming quickly. And the response from the church is, Amen. Even so, come. But it's also this, note, whoever thirsts, come. 
Whoever desires, come. And so what I believe this is, I believe this is the church with two invitations going simultaneously. Lord Jesus, come. You are the desire of the nations. You are the goal of our life. We want you. Come. You're the only solution. You're the only way. Come. But at the same time, it's a booming declaration to the nations. Is anybody thirsty? Come. So it's saying, Lord, come. But it's also saying to the nations, come. Whoever desires anybody, come. It's two things at the same time. It's not just the church hiding away and saying, oh, Lord Jesus, come. Here we are. We're here and we're just, we're hiding away and we've got our baked beans and we, we, we want you to come. Because there's also the to the nations come at the hands of a humble, simple, flexible, fluid, powerful church that loves Jesus with all her heart. Declaring to the nations of the earth, is anyone thirsty? Is anybody, is anybody out there living in the desert of our Western world society, is anyone thirsty? Is anyone looking for something better than what you can get in the store? Is anyone looking for something that will satisfy your longing better than the latest phone you can buy or the latest electric car that you want to drive around in? Is anyone thirsty? Come. It's two invitations. It's really the first and second commandment, isn't it? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Come, Lord Jesus, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Hey, thirsty, come. Hey, desiring, come. It's the two things together. It's the church in the final hour with their eyes fixed on Jesus, simultaneously crying out, Lord Jesus, come. And crying out to those who are thirsty, come. And I believe that there will be increasing urgency as this day draws closer. And I believe that not exclusively, but primarily, it's going to be many who are young that are going to wake up. And it's going to be many who are feeling the heaviest weight of the burden that is coming on the shoulders of so many people. As the society that we have known all our lives, as it begins to fray, where's it fraying? It's fraying around the edges. And many who are on the margins, many who would have only been able to bring the turtle dove, are probably going to be among the first who would come. So that's what I had for you this morning. Good. So now I want to ask the Lord to release to you what he has for you this morning. I hope he was doing it sim simultaneously. But I want him to release to you what he has for you. Because in our bewitched state, and I'm not saying you were bewitched specifically, but in our corporately bewitched state, we, we're not fit for those days 
that I've attempted to begin to begin to describe. But if we wake up from that slumber and if we break free from the bondages of the, 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 the ways, oh man, my legs feel really weird. Maybe we should stand up. It's, it's, a, it's a really good weird, but it is weird. Let's just, mm, let's just go back to turning our eyes on the Lord. Just keep your eyes on the Lord. Right now, if, if any fear accompanied what I just said to you, take authority over it and cast it out. Just drive it away. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. Remember when talking about this, Jesus said, when these things begin to take place, see to it that you are not troubled. What is that? Fearful. If fear came with it, right now, just inside your own heart and mind, take authority over it, dismiss it. Lord Jesus, we are now asking for you to bring what only you can bring. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Spirit of wisdom and revelation, the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation. You are guiding us into all truth. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have told us in advance of the things that would unfold in the world around us so that we would be equipped. And I'm asking now, Lord Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, let your anointing begin to come on each person in this room and any who maybe stumble across this recording. Lord, let your anointing come strongly on every person in the room. Let your anointing come strongly on every person on the room, in the room and on the children in that other room back there. Lord, we pray even a double portion for them. Let your anointing come strongly on every person in the room. The Spirit and the bride say, come. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, thirsty ones. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, any who desire. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Let every heart burn within us. Let each of our hearts burn within us. Come, Lord Jesus. We want you. We turn our eyes to you. The things of the world have already begun to become strangely, weirdly dim. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. And Lord, we ask that you would put in us your heart for the thirsty and those who desire that out of our lives, out of our households, even out of this fellowship, there would be a booming invitation 
any who are thirsty, come, come drink. Come drink, come buy without money. Come receive without cost everything that Jesus has purchased for you. Come, Spirit of God, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. More, Lord. We're asking for more, Lord. We're asking for more, Lord. Lord, I'm asking, release fresh and increased anointing to each person. Lord, you made us, you wove us together in our mother's womb, and you saw the days that we would be alive. And so we thank you, God, that you have made us for these days. And Lord Jesus, we thank you. We stir up that inbuilt capacity that you designed into us for these days. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for the light shining in the darkness, not hiding from it. Thank you that it's the great and terrible day of the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Lord, let more anointing come. Just receive more anointing. We're going to open up the front for an altar call in a moment for more anointing. But right now, where you are, receive more, receive more, receive more. Thank you, Lord. More, 